Hello, survivalists. This is the Crux True Survival Stories. We are your hosts, Casey McIntosh and Julie Henningsen. Julie Henningsen will be leading the story today. In today's episode, we're diving deep into the chilling events of yet another disaster on Mount Hood in Oregon. This one occurred in 1986, and it's the second deadliest alpine accident in North American history. Imagine being trapped high on the icy slopes at 11,000 feet in whiteout conditions with 15 high school students. This is not only a story of survival, but a story of devastating tragedy for many involved. So buckle up and prepare for a roller coaster of emotions as we delve into the heart-stopping true survival story of the 1986 Mount Hood disaster. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks to the listener who recommended this. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest during this time and was surprised that I'd never heard this story. I learned later there's kind of a reason behind that, but we appreciated the tip on this. And I'll tell you what, Casey, this, this one got me. This story is tough. There is survival, but there's also devastation. So hold on for the ride here. As I mentioned, the story I'm about to tell describes the second deadliest alpine accident in North American history. The first deadliest accident involved an avalanche that occurred on Mount Rainier, just north of Mount Hood, also in the Cascade Range, which claimed 11 lives in 1981. So this is five years later, in May 1986. A group of 20 climbers embarked on a journey to ascend Mount Hood. Mount Hood is a picturesque stratovolcano that tops out at an elevation of 11,239 feet, or 3,426 meters. And we've talked about this mountain before in a previous episode. Um, We had mentioned that it's thought by some mountaineers to be kind of a beginner mountain. Um, In the right conditions, it can be a pretty straightforward summit. But this is kind of a dangerous misperception, because although you know, the climb is straightforward and manageable in good conditions on a clear day. The whole area is really prone to sudden weather shifts and it's covered in hidden thermal vents, crevasses, and other hazards that can catch the unexpected mountaineer off guard. In fact, in the past century, more than 120 people have died on Mount Hood. This number is more representative of what you might find on other North American peaks like Denali or Mount Washington, what are thought of as maybe more challenging climbs, maybe not Mount Washington, but certainly Denali. 
So this particular expedition was part of the Oregon Episcopal School, which is a private school that ran a program called Base Camp. And Base Camp was an outdoor education adventure program for sophomores. So all the sophomores in the small private school were required to participate as part of their school curriculum. There were 20 people total in the group, 15 students, sophomores in high school, one student's mother, their leader, who was also the school's chaplain named Thomas Goman, one school administrator, and two professional mountaineering guides. The guides were named D. Zuniak and Ralph Summers. And they were both experienced mountaineers, as was the trip leader and chaplain, Tom Goman. The students themselves had been given training in mountaineering as part of their school curriculum leading up to the climb. So they'd practiced and been taught things like self-arrest, step kicking, glissading, basic wilderness first aid. There was some preparation that went into this program. And it was something the school had been doing for many years. It was a tradition. And many sophomores and classes ahead of this group had successfully attempted or summited Mount Hood with little incident. So the group met at 11 p.m. the night before Sunday, May 11th, which happened to be Mother's Day, to gear up and head to the mountain. The plan was to summit by mid-morning the next day. They were going to be up and down within a day and then head back down and be home by Sunday night. They carried all the right equipment. The students had ice axes, helmets, ropes for rope teams, crampons, good gear, compasses. They carried wands to mark their path on the way up. They had one sleeping bag between the entire group and uh, one sturdy shovel. What's the benefit of having one sleeping bag? Are they thinking, oh, somebody gets injured or something? We're going to use the sleeping bag for that person? I was just curious if you found anything out about that. Yeah, great question. I didn't see anything specifically about that, but um, we'll we'll learn how they used that one sleeping bag. And it is logical to me that they brought it in case they ran into the situation that they needed it for, which was to warm somebody up. They may have learned in their basic first aid class that one of the treatments for hypothermia is to put somebody in the hypo wrap, which a critical component of that would be a, a sleeping bag, even just one. So they, they may have brought it in mind as part of their first aid supplies. So the climbers began their ascent under clear skies and relatively favorable weather conditions. They left the Timberline Lodge, which is at the base of the climb. And incidentally, just the exterior pictures of the lodge were used in um, the movie The Shining with Jack Nicholson to represent the lodge that he was hired to caretake, if you've seen that film. Terrifying. The first section of the climb was a 5,200-foot ascent along the eastern edge of the Timberline Ski Area. And there's a well-known um, chairlift, the Palmer Chair, that basically runs up the mountain parallel to the climb's path, all the way up to 8,500 feet. And we talked about this in the last story about Mount Hood as well. Certainly the chairlift isn't running at the hours of day that the climbers are heading up the hill, but... They're basically climbing next to or under this chairlift up to 8,500 feet. The route continues up, taking the climbers past well-known features, um, the most popular route to the summit. The features they would pass are called Crater's Rock, the Hog's Back, which is a huge mound of ice and snow at about 10,500 feet, and then two prominent rock towers near the summit called the Pearly Gates. So they could see laid out in front of them kind of where they were going and what they were looking for. 
The group's leader, as I mentioned, Thomas Gorman, who was also the school's chaplain, was loved and respected by the students. And he was an experienced mountaineer. He'd done a lot of mountaineering for many years, even before he worked for the school. And at this point, he'd been with the school for about eight years. He'd led successful climbs within the school in the same program. And when I read the accounts of what happened, I wondered if maybe having had so much experience and having been on this mountain with so many groups so many times beforehand may have lowered his guard or may have um, clouded his ability to make good decisions because he was possibly overconfident or just too comfortable with what he um, understood to be the reality of the mountain. He taught philosophy at the school and ethics and math. Um, He was a priest and also had a doctorate with a degree from Harvard. So really well-respected. And from everything I've read, just a generally good guy as well. When you give all these details about how wonderful someone is, I feel like that's foreshadowing for a bad outcome for this person. (laughs) I've said too much. You've given too much away, Julie. I'll try and keep the surprise alive here. There are some bad outcomes, though. Be advised. The forecast for the day was not good, and they knew that. Uh, Thomas Gorman thought that they could proceed with the climb and beat the weather. He figured they'd be back down before the weather hit. And some critics of the story after the fact suggested that this may have been kind of the first bad decision of this climb. Veteran climbers of um, Mount Hood generally know that bad weather can come on really suddenly and severely without warning. So knowing that as they ascended, a few climbers started having second thoughts. Um, One student climber, Hilary Spray, wasn't feeling well. She wasn't feeling fit enough for the climb and just had a feeling that she didn't want to go on. Her mom happened to be one of the adult chaperones as well. So she and her mother, Sharon, turned back. They were the first two to turn back. There was some pressure, she later mentioned, from the leadership of the climb to keep going, but she followed her gut and turned back. Shortly thereafter, around 7,000 feet in elevation, two other climbers turned back, complaining of cramps and, and not feeling up to the climb. And then later in the morning, around 11.30 a.m., one of the guides, D. Zuniak, also turned back um, because she had developed some snow blindness. There's also um, mention in retelling of the story that D., who was an experienced guide and mountaineer and had worked for Outward Bound as a guide, at this point suggested that the whole group might consider turning back. And there was some discussion about finishing the climb and heading back down together. But that wasn't the decision that the leader made. So the rest of the group kept going. At this point, they were down to 13 climbers. I was going to ask you, D is a woman? D is a woman, yes. It's interesting just because um, there are some studies that show that women have a little bit more of that intuition or, I mean, judge me if you will, but I've read studies about uh, backcountry skiers. When you have a woman on your team, you're less likely to encounter avalanches and different things like that, just statistically speaking, which is a little bit interesting. Men, I think sometimes, I'm not judging you, by the way, all the men out there that are listening. But sometimes men make the decision maybe against their gut instinct, whereas women have less testosterone and therefore maybe more likely to turn around. Yeah, you you said it, Casey. I think there's been research into that phenomenon and it has been related specifically to testosterone, which is kind of a risk-taking hormone. And men certainly often have more of that than women. So there is, I think, some science behind that. While the climbers were nearing the summit, A severe winter storm just descended upon them and upon the mountain. 
And the other professional guide, Ralph Summers at this point, really questioned proceeding into the worsening conditions. But still, Thomas Gorman thought they were close enough to the top. They could make it, had a little summit fever, it sounds like. Thought they could make it to the summit, turn back, and head back down. So he was still kind of advocating moving forward. But finally, around 2 p.m., they were above 11,000 feet, so very near the summit. Um, they all agreed, including Thomas Goman, that they should turn back. The weather became so bad, it was um, an obvious decision by this point. The visibility was at 20 to 30 feet, high winds, frigid temperatures. And as they started their descent, it quickly became clear that they were in serious trouble. Things got worse on the descent when one of the youngest climbers, who was a lean, athletic, slim young man, started struggling with cold. He didn't have a lot of body fat um, and he was getting hypothermic. He was staggering, his speech was slurring, um, he was falling over. He had, he had a bad case of the umbles. He was fumbling, mumbling, stumbling, and grumbling. All of the signs of moderate hypothermia. So the group rallied around him. They built this hypo wrap I mentioned earlier. They placed him in their only sleeping bag, wrapped him um, with their warmth, their warm bodies, and they boiled some water and prepared him a hot sugary drink, which took a little while. It took about an hour to try and um, help rewarm him, which is easier said than done because the warmth doesn't come from the outside. It's got to be um, created on the inside through metabolism. So when we look at between putting him in a sleeping bag or wrapping warm bodies around him or preparing him a hot sugary drink, one of those three things is way more helpful than the other two. And it's the hot sugary drink. And it's not necessarily the heat, it's the sugar. Giving him something to metabolize to create a little internal heat is critical in a situation like that. So the conditions were bad and getting worse and low visibility conditions like this on a mountain can induce vertigo like disorientation where you can't differentiate the sky from the ground. It's really hard to navigate with this type of visibility and blowing wind and blowing snow. So Goman's navigation was off as he began leading the group back down on the descent. It turns out they were actually going more on a side hill route than they were descending, not knowing that. That is horrible. Yeah, they weren't really even headed in the right direction. And there's some thought that maybe hypothermia was setting in for the leader as well. And that was playing a role in the poor navigation. But eventually, two other adults, Summers and McClave, the school administrator who was along on the climb, took over leadership. They were concerned that um, Goman was experiencing some cold-induced cognitive decline. Eventually, visibility dropped to less than 10 feet, and they were coming upon unexpected crevasses, not seeing them until they were about to step into them. And the day was winding up by seven o'clock at night. They didn't know their location, and most of their members were just suffering from cold, if not already hypothermic. Were these kids roped in to one another or not? Yes, they were. They were carrying ropes and they were divided into rope teams. They weren't roped together the entire time, but on the portions of the mountain where they needed to be, they were. Eventually they made the decision to stop where they were and they 
decided to dig a snow cave and dig in for the night. So the guide, Larry Summers, with the one shovel that they had, started digging in this blowing, cold snow. And he did his best to dig a snow cave. It took about an hour. And when he was done, the cave itself measured about six by eight feet on the floor and about four feet tall. The group tried to wedge themselves into this cave as tightly as they could, but it was just too small. It was big enough for about six people, and they were 13 people. Within the cave, the floor of the cave kind of became wet as the walls melted from body heat. So if you were sitting in the middle of the cave, you were sitting in a wet puddle, and there were just a lot of things about it that weren't ideal. They were really worried about oxygen supply in the confined space. They rotated in and out of the cave. And their leader, Thomas Goman, stayed out of the cave longer than most. He was shaking with cold in the throes of hypothermia, but sacrificing a spot in the cave to try and keep the students as warm as they could. Ultimately, the winds got so heavy that it blew away their shovel and their only sleeping bag just blew away. I was just wondering if the storm was persisting at this point when they dug the snow cave, but it sounds like, yes, it was. Yeah, the storm was persisting and actually, believe it or not, the storm was worsening. And this was just the beginning of this particular storm. So as you recall, they were meant to be down from their climb that evening and sleep in their own beds that night. So um, search and rescue was called when the group didn't return as expected that night and the Portland Mountain Rescue responded. So the search and rescue reached Timberline Lodge where they had started their climb at 5.20 a.m. the next morning. That'd be Monday morning. And one of the rescuers had summited Mount Hood at least 460 times in his career, in his life. And he later stated that the weather conditions he encountered on that particular search were the worst he had ever seen. He commented that he got frostbite on that rescue, um, which is something that had never happened to him. The storm is ongoing and worsening. There were winds up to 103 miles per hour by this point, which winds that fast qualify as a category two hurricane. You can't even stand up in a hundred mile an hour winds. And the rescue team still went out. With blowing snow by this point, there was zero visibility. You couldn't even probably hold your hand out in front of your face and see it. Several waves of rescue teams, in fact, went out throughout that morning, despite the conditions. Uh, the winds were so strong, in fact, that it, the wind blew over a snowcat, just flipped it over. So despite these really treacherous conditions, the teams made heroic efforts to try and rescue and locate these climbers. Meanwhile, back in the cave by morning, Thomas Goleman, the leader who had stayed out of the cave more than anyone else, he was unable to count to 10. He was so far in the throes of hypothermia that he had major cognitive decline. So at that point, the guide, Ralph Summers, and one of the more skilled students um, decided that they needed to go for help. The sun came up and they left the cave. They were still generally headed in the wrong direction and not realizing it. But through a stroke of luck, by um, about 9.50 in the morning, they made it to a different lodge, the Mount Hood Meadows Lodge, which is about two miles east of where they intended to go. So they're feeling good about having made it to this lodge. And as soon as they got there, of course, the rescue efforts were ready to continue with their help in um, directing them towards where they think the cave might be, the snow cave, which was tough because they were disoriented. 
whiteout conditions. So all they could really offer was their best guess. And they were in pretty bad shape themselves too. So because this storm just continued to rage, the rescue continued throughout that entire day, Tuesday, and into Tuesday night, and on into early Wednesday morning with no success. The climbers had now been in this cave for two nights, just crammed into this tiny cave, rotating in and out. Eventually, so much snow had fallen that the entrance to the cave was blocked. They lost their shovel, which they had been using to kind of keep the entrance open. So snow covered the entrance. And three students that had rotated out of the cave at that point were just not able to get back in. So there were three students locked out of the cave, eight people essentially buried in the cave under the snow, and things went from bad to worse. Finally, around 2 a.m. Wednesday morning, the weather broke and the sun came up around 5.45 a.m. that morning. As the rescuers started the search again with the sun, they were able to see some small black dots up on the mountainside in an area of the mountain called the White River Canyon. And I'm sure you can guess, Casey, what those small... The three students that got blocked out of the snow cave. Yep, that's exactly right. These were the bodies of the students who had left the cave. They were found frozen in a fetal position. And their body temperatures when they were found were in the 40s. So they definitely had uh, succumbed to hypothermia. So by this point, the weather finally got clear enough that helicopters were able to respond. But they really, at this point, were only collecting and transporting these three victims that had been discovered. The search for the buried eight Climbers continued unsuccessfully. The cave was almost impossible to find by this point. There were navigation mistakes, um, second-guessing directions, confusion on the part of the survivors and rescuers surrounding the location of the cave. Um, And even when Larry Summers went up in a helicopter to try and direct the rescuers towards the cave, they couldn't find it. They couldn't find the climbers. It's worse than finding a needle in a haystack because... When you're in that situation, you can only see 10 feet in front of you. You would have no way of recalling what the surroundings look like, you know? Yeah. The surroundings all look the same, just pure whiteout. So when the entire day of Wednesday passed with no success in finding the remaining eight, and eventually they shifted their tactic with the search to what you would do in an uh, avalanche search, which is setting up a fine probe line. And the rescuers carried um, avalanche probes and worked their way down the mountain methodically, standing three feet apart from each other, shoulder to shoulder, and pushing these skinny 10-foot avalanche probes, looks like a tent pole, down into the snow with each step, trying to determine if there was something buried under the snow. And then finally, at 5.38 p.m. in the evening, this is 22 minutes before the search would be called off for that day, One of the probes in the rescue um, line hit something and they started digging. They had found the cave. They heard moaning below them as they dug the snow out. They, They sensed a bad smell, which kind of indicated to them that they likely found what they were looking for. Oh no. How startling that must have been. Yes. Yes, startling and relieving and so many emotions with this. I can't even imagine. These rescuers had worked so hard in such treacherous conditions for so many days. It's uh, amazing that they finally found this buried cave. 
especially when they did. And even more amazingly, a student in the cave, in the group that was still in the cave named Brinton Clark was semi-conscious. She was alive and semi-conscious. Her core temperature later when she was admitted to the hospital was 72 degrees, severe hypothermia. Other climbers later had core temperatures anywhere ranging from 37 degrees Fahrenheit to 54 degrees Fahrenheit, which just tells you how cold they were and how long they'd been buried. It makes me wonder why was her core body temperature higher than theirs? You know, I understand if you're outside the cave, it's going to be lower, obviously, but compared to the other people in the cave, why was her temperature so much higher? That's such a great question. And the miracle here is that she and one other student uh, by the name of Giles Thompson both survived. One of the surgeons who was involved in um, Thompson's care later commented that he thinks the quality of his gear actually is what contributed to his survival and to his kind of maintaining warmth. He had good quality cold weather gear on. So that might be one possible answer, but so many factors. And really at the end of the day, who knows what um, allowed those two to survive in such harsh conditions. So all eight climbers had been rushed to the hospital to various nearby medical centers um, because there wasn't one hospital that all eight of them could go to. Um, and they needed high level resuscitative care. Um, we have this mantra that nobody's dead until they're warm and dead. So it is unknown at this time, at this point in our story, who's going to live and, and who's not going to make it because it can be very difficult without a cardiac monitor or other high-tech equipment to distinguish somebody who's truly dead from somebody who's just severely hypothermic and has a possibility of resuscitation. So as we do in this case, all of the um, climbers were given the benefit of the doubt and all resuscitation efforts known were offered to each one of these um, folks to see if they could survive. But ultimately only these two, uh, Clark and Thompson survived. And interestingly, Thompson, one of the survivors, throughout the course of his care, had gone into cardiac arrest, and the surgeons that were helping him opened his chest and massaged his heart by hand, which triggered his cardiac rhythm back into a normal rhythm and saved his life. Kind of a manual defibrillation. Sometimes you just got to put your hand on somebody's heart, Julie. Exactly. You do what's called for. So he survived, um, Giles Thompson, but his... Recuperation phase was not easy. It took him months of rehab. He lost both of his legs to frostbite. He ended up having a above knee amputation on one leg and a below knee amputation on the other. Interestingly, Brinton Clark, the other survivor, went on to go to Stanford and she served in the Peace Corps and later attended medical school and is a practicing physician. So both of them have gone on to live pretty fulfilling lives. I was just wondering if you um, found anything that indicated there were many memories of the snow cave. And I'm sure that when you're so cold, your hypothermic time, the sense of time probably goes by the wayside. Well, much of the story filling in the gaps of what happened with that group comes from their recollections and um, written accounts of the details. So it sounds like they did kind of maintain a lot of you know, memories about it, but probably had periods of um, 
semi or unconsciousness as well, where they were unaware. So I mentioned before that I grew up in this area and don't recall hearing about this story. It's such a powerful, uh, just big story that I thought, gosh, why, why didn't I hear more about this at that time? And it is becomes the families of those involved in the school made a pact that nobody would profit from the story. There weren't going to be any book deals or movie deals. Um, they turned down interview requests. They really guarded the privacy and sanctity of these families who lost loved ones and went to um, probably beyond usual measures of protecting the story from media. The only book um, about this is one that was written by one of the victim's mothers and isn't necessarily about the story, but more about her experience of it. So this was in May and the climbers were all honored at the school's graduation ceremony just later that year. And the school administrator who had not survived, Susan McClave, was given four posthumous awards for her service, leadership and loyalty. And an investigation was started um, to just get to the bottom of what went wrong. A report was created that basically assigned the blame primarily to Thomas Goleman for his decision to not turn back when the weather was worsening. Some of the families received settlements by the school insurers and there were of course lawsuits from families against the school. And the school has not done a Mount Hood climb since. There was a student that year who was a sophomore supposed to go on this climb. He had trained with his classmates, was ready to go and would have been there if it weren't for the fact that he sprained his ankle two days before the climb so couldn't go he sat it out and that just haunted him deeply for years he faced kind of enormous grief of what happened to his schoolmates in uh, 1999 years later as an adult he summited mount hood and left a string of tibetan prayer flags and a laminated prayer on the, the summit uh, praying for eternal healing and acceptance of what we cannot understand that was the luckiest ankle sprain of all time Exactly. It reminds me of the parable of the Chinese farmer where you never know when something bad happens, you never know if it's actually maybe something good. So the Mount Hood disaster of 1986 serves as a sobering reminder of the unpredictable and dangerous nature of Alpine environments. This tragic event remains a somber chapter in the history of American mountaineering, highlighting both the allure and the peril of high altitude adventures. It serves as a reminder for the importance of careful planning, experience, respect for unpredictable forces of nature when venturing into the mountains. And the names of the victims in this tragedy are Patrick McGinnis, Tasha Amy, Marion Horwell, Susan McClave, Richard Hader, Eric Sandvik, Thomas Goleman, Aaron O'Leary, and Allison Litzenberger. These names are read every year at the Oregon Episcopal School as a part of an annual memorial ceremony that they hold to honor this event. Um, the group that turned around, do those people make it back? Yep, they all made it back and they all were a girl and sort of reporting the events of what happened. Uh, so first of all, obviously the whole group should have turned back at that point. But I also wonder if at the point at which they dug the snow cave, if they should have just kept going, because it sounds like the storm just progressively worsened from that point forward. It's hard to say because your chances of hypothermia at that point are getting greater and greater. 
the more you're out there in the elements. Yeah, I got the sense that their priority became trying to rewarm those really cold students who were already hypothermic and, and thinking that, you know, they need maybe needed a break anyway, if they can get out of the wind, get out of the blowing snow, use some body heat, um, that maybe it would just be a break till the weather shifted and then they could move on. Um, but of course the weather never shifted, which nobody could have foreseen. Yeah. If they would have known that, I wonder if they would have spent the extra time digging another snow cave. I don't know. It's just obviously questions that we'll never know the answers to. Yeah. Yep. Questions that we'll never know the answers to. And it sounds like it was a pretty unprecedented weather event on the mountain. So my guess is they were probably at every moment thinking, okay, the weather's got to break now. It's got to get better. Like it can't keep going that much longer. It almost seems like this mountain has some type of curse, like this demon that just comes out every once in a while to wreak havoc and satisfy some evil desire. Yeah. We've told two really remarkable stories of events that have occurred on this mountain. And like I said, the second worst accident in Alpine history in the U.S. That's pretty telling. So there you have it, Casey. Tragedy on Mount Hood, 1986. Wow. It's chilling and unnerving. I cannot even imagine what it would be like to be one of those parents waiting at home to find out whether or not your kid was one of the kids that was in that snow cave, you know, just wondering what the outcome was going to be. And here's a little twist to the story that I didn't mention is when they first saw the black dots, the three kids Mm -hmm. that were outside the cave, the initial responders to those groups, somehow the communication got confused and the message that the parents received was that they were all alive and that they had found three survivors, even though they had already died of hypothermia by the time the rescuers got to them. So when their bodies were transported and it became evident that no, there are no survivors, it was just a devastating letdown to these parents who were on the edge of their seat. That is absolutely terrible. There's nothing worse than going through the emotional roller coaster of something like that. I just wanted to bring something up that came from a John Hill, AKA hood shredder 666 on Instagram. who sent us a message regarding our Mount hood episode that we did before when Julie and I were wondering about whether or not people rode the chair or, you know, what was the situation He said, just to clarify, most of us don't consider it cheating to take the Palmer chair and climb from there. Most climbers want to start earlier, so it isn't an option, but it's very popular for those of us who want to snowboard or ski down. There is some heightened rock and ice fall risk, but we want the softer snow for the ride down. Also, going later typically means most other parties are off the mountain and the risk of people falling into you is less. It's an official statement from John Hill. Thanks for the comment. Yeah, this is pri- this is a prime opportunity to give him a high five back because we were talking about the mountain again. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of the Crux True Survival Podcast. And um, we always appreciate you listening. Um, thanks for your support. If you want to follow us on Instagram, we are at the Crux Podcast. You can also reach out to us via our email at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. A good way of supporting us is just sharing our Instagram posts on your Instagram stories or sharing with a friend. We really, really appreciate that. So anyway, I hope you guys have a great week and um, till next time. Goodbye. Goodbye. 